received hundreds of applications for just a single opening. One man sent a shoot to his prospective employer. Shorty, don't you know that Air Jordan was for me? But once I tried it on, that's when the magic happened. After checking to ensure that the shirt would properly cover my girth, I walked from my trailer to Walmart with the shirt on and was immediately approached by women. We love you, Yes, this is real life. And over there, sitting at a merch table outside the conference room, there's Big David and Little David selling David after dentist t-shirts. He's just as cute, not whacked out a Novocaine or laughing gas, or whatever that oral surgeon gave him. He seems to think his 15 minutes are over, though, because his friends have stopped watching the video. They don't talk about it as much as they used to anymore. David's father posted that video in January 2009, and more than 58 million people have watched it. But Big David isn't quitting quite yet. He plans on squeezing every YouTube view he can out of his quarter hour. You know, we're on about 29 and a half minutes of our 15 minutes of fame, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll ride it as long as we can. I didn't buy a David After Dentist t-shirt because I think Big David is trying a little too hard and Little David is in danger of being traumatized for the rest of his life. But I did buy the RaffleCon shirt, the one based on Three Wolf Moon, the t-shirt Brian Govern made famous with his Amazon review. He's here too. I probably don't need to describe it, but I'm gonna. It's a black t-shirt with three screen-printed wolves howling in unison at the moon. Brian told me the story of how he found the shirt. Well, I was uh, one night I was laying in bed uh, looking for school books from Amazon.com for the next semester. And I had searched, for, I remember just like it was yesterday, I searched for professional responsibility, patent law, and uh, intellectual property business transactions. And somehow those three searches caused Amazon's uh, recommendation engine to uh, suggest that I might like this Three Wolf Moon t-shirt. Brian then wrote a review, a very colorful review. Sitting aside saddle so that my wolves would show, while I was browsing tube socks, I could hear aroused asthmatic breathing behind me. I turned around to see a slightly sweaty dream in sweatpants and flip-flops standing there. She told me she likes the wolves on my shirt, and I told her I wanted to howl at her moon. That review was, of course, the first of many. Standing next to Brian is Antonia Neshev. She designed the original Three Wolf Moon shirt and made Bulgarian history. I was Googling my name, actually, in the hope that uh, there will be people uh, who are posting my images and eventually would be interested in doing business with them. I hit the page of Sofia, Bulgaria, which is the uh, two million uh, population capital of Bulgaria. And on the bottom of this site, I saw my name. It was Antonia Neshev, the inventor of Three Wolf Moon. In the hallway, Joel Veitch from RatherGood.com. My favorite online video of all time is his I Love the Moon. I love it so much that it didn't bother me when it showed up in a Quiznos ad. I was pumped to learn his little creatures came from late night revelry. So I went to the pub with my brother and we got quite drunk. We were talking about the moon and how it was pretty cool. And uh, I got back home and we got out a guitar and he started strumming the guitar and I just improvised a song to go with it, kind of looking around the room to pick up cues. And uh, like quite often you do that kind of thing and you listen back to it the next day and it's just awful. But um, that particular one I listened back to the next day, I thought there might be something to it. So I took these characters, these rather ugly little monkey things that I'd been fiddling about with, and I animated them in Flash to be singing the song. And that was it, really. So it was very little work and very little thought, and it wasn't really written in advance or anything. And then you put it on the internet? And then I put it on the internet, yeah, yeah. And told a couple of my friends that it was there. And, and that's it, you know, that's all there is to it. And then it just went mental, it kind of went all around the world, yeah. It turns out lots of famous things on the internet get invented because of alcohol. That's what happened with Jonathan and Matthew from Lame Book. Yeah, we were just sitting around one night um, drinking some beer and uh, we were just going through like all of the 
crappy profiles of people we went to school with, and we're just like, man, this sucks. We need to get all this stuff together. So that's that's when we actually registered it, and then we just sat on the name for a while, and then one day I just built the website. If you ever wonder what happens when people find out they are on Lamebook, well, it turns out some of the best stories do get taken down. But Jonathan told me you can still find his favorite Lamebook takedown on the internet. This girl sent a message to about 10 of her friends saying she was coming into town, probably going to be there in a couple hours. So one of the guys, Jason, responded and unfortunately responded to everyone instead of just her and was like, hey, I'm sorry, I can't make it. Please don't tell uh, Sylvia that I slept with Margaret. Those are horrible names. Those aren't their names. But uh, yeah, so he replies all about (laughs) to these, and these two girls are in the message after he just said, you know, that he had slept with one, the other one didn't know. So they get on the comments, you know, they found the post somehow, and he started commenting, and then the girls got on and started commenting. They posted his full name, and it just exploded. There was like 300 comments within a couple hours. After I talked to the lame book guys, I decided to do some more walking around. I did a lap around the building. I also saw a lot of my Twitter friends. They do exist, removed from 140 characters. I think I also saw Moot from 4chan. Then, when I was standing in the restroom line, Mahir of IKissYou.org fame walked out of the bathroom and winked at me. I was pretty flustered when I ran into Kate Gregory and the Gregory brothers from auto-tuning the news. I wanted to ask them about their superpowers to auto-tune the whole world, but I choked. All I got was a story about an engagement party where their first big video debuted on the Rachel Maddow show. We were worried about kind of like an upstaging thing happening. And I think at the time I was drinking some sort of mixed cocktail that involved tomato juice, tequila, and beer. All this IRL was making me lose my cool. IRL. Yeah, yeah. I think IRL will probably go the way of the raffle in terms of no longer used acronyms, except in, you know, ironic context. In real life, Tim Huang is the founder of RaffleCon, a convention slash conference for internet nerds. RaffleCon started out as sort of a thought problem. Tim asked himself what would happen if he took all of his favorite people from the net and brought them together in one real world room. And then he tested the idea. It was a very kind of simple process. It was just like, let's list everybody we ever thought was cool on the internet and email them pretending like we have a real conference. And as they confirmed, we started announcing them and and people got more and more excited. And we were like, okay, well, I guess at some point we should set up a way for people to register for this event. And I think it wasn't until like four or five months down the road where we realized we actually had a real conference. That was RaffleCon 1 in 2008. And about 700 people showed up to hang out with internet celebs like Jay Maynard, the Tron guy. Last weekend, Tim Huang and his co-organizer Christina Xu did it again, and TMI producer Laura Mayer, myself, and about a thousand other nerds descended on the MIT campus for RaffleCon 2. But it turns out many of the online Illuminati don't like real-world attention. Um, one of the funny things you find with internet stars, of course, is their faces are actually kind of a, a, a more minor part of what makes them identifiable. Um, so you have a couple of guests, and I know it happened this week, and it happened in 2008, is where a couple of guests are like, I'm actually bored of having all these people come up to me all the time. And they would actually take their, their name tags off and instantly become completely anonymous. Like, no one would ever know who they were. And that's certainly an element that I think is really kind of awesome about and so, so some of the people we've brought together. One of the things that you see that seems to be common, at least among you know the guests that we invite, so there might be a little bit of a selection <laughs> bias there, um, but what was only among the people that we invite and people we find sort of notable and exciting to have is um, their unwillingness to kind of push it any further than it has to go. Trying too hard is a big loser online. It's a huge loser online, right? Of course, sometimes trying too hard can also make you famous online. But this isn't the kind of thing you really want to get famous for. But it's not like you get to choose. The internet decides who and what gets to be famous with a logic that is totally illogical. And this, Tim says, is why online celebrities have an authenticity that Hollywood or reality television stars don't have. You get the, a sense of actually that from some of the guests that they're actually, they feel like they're victims to a much larger system. You know, they drop the video online and, and the currents of the web pick this up in such a way that, you know, they, they are where they are. Um, but often the best stories that come out of the web are actually the ones that are very unexpected, right? Like so the David Astridentist one is great because like I uploaded this video and, and then 
all this thing, all these things started to happen. So, so yeah, I mean, I think authenticity plays a big part of it, if not only because they couldn't be otherwise. That's not to say people aren't trying to figure out how the system works. Artists, marketers, businessmen, hackers, academics, and radio show hosts are all trying to figure out why certain memes go viral online. Tim believes it will be the scientists with their I-can-know-everything-about-you-and-everything-you've-ever-done tools who will figure it out first. When I ask, get asked the question, like, how do you make a meme? Can you make a meme? Um, there's probably two points. One of them is, um, well, memes happen all the time, right? which is kind of the flip answer. Um, but um, the real answer is I think we will understand it eventually. And I'm kind of an optimist in this respect. I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in the world of uh, data mining and statistics and uh, you know, m machine learning and algorithms that essentially um, are trying to take all this data that's now available online and actually just build a science around it. Actually, can we say anything concrete about this that's actually um, data-driven and, and really kind of gets the core of this stuff? Um, and obviously, a lot of it's still rudimentary, but I'm of the mind that we will eventually, if not solve the problem, get close to it, right? And I think, uh, I think the only reason why it's in a mysterious process right now is just because in the past we didn't have the the, the kind of resources necessary to kind of understand this in full. Now, while Tim's genius tempts me to put my chips on his card, I just cannot accept that science will one day be able to explain to me why I like watching a cat wearing a JCPenney's onesie from the 70s play the keyboard. But I did learn tons about the internet at RaffleCon, and not just that I am now totally old. For example, I thought that I hated Facebook because of its atrocious privacy policies, but I realize now that the real reason I hate Facebook is because there is no dislike button, something that makes actual genuine human communication in their gated community impossible. I'm, I don't think we should be afraid of negativity. I think it's really, in its own way, a very useful, positive thing. April Winchell's site, Regretsy, is kind of like one giant awesome dislike button on the internet. She simply shines a spotlight on some of the things she likes on the arts and crafts site, Etsy. Jewelry that looks like uteruses or a pair of Twilight sneakers or candy bowls made out of records, you know, or just garbage. April is clearly having a lot of fun celebrating her Etsy finds, but she also believes her work is important. If nothing was ever bad, then nothing would ever get better. And the first thing that you did in your career as an artist would be just as good as what you accomplished after a lifetime of learning and experience. So there'd be no impetus to improve because everything is always as good as it's ever going to be. And I think that without the mundane and the not very interesting or the not well-crafted, you can't really appreciate things that are spectacular. And I think that that, that dichotomy is, is really important. And I think that we've also become uh, babies in a lot of ways, the political correctness and this driving force to be relentlessly positive. It's not human and it's not natural. And I think if it were, people wouldn't get so much release and pleasure out of being able to laugh at something that isn't very good. It feels good. Honesty, whenever you tell the truth about something, people act like you've invented fire. And it's just that they don't hear the truth very, very often. It's a difficult thing to do. It's very dangerous. It's much easier to be nice. But the more risks you take, I really believe the greater rewards you get. April took a risk with Regretsy. I mean, you kind of have to assume that the site Etsy will sue you if you start posting Etsy stuff just to mock the products. And when Regretsy started pulling in millions of hits, April started sweating the inevitable cease and desist letter. But Etsy was cool. All they did was ask her to change her website colors, which she did, of course. But the Etsy users April features... They are often not cool about the attention. Not everybody sees the humor or the benefit in, uh, in being on the site. April has got lots of stories, but I doubt some of these will be in her upcoming book. I featured a woman who made hats out of yarn that she carded from your dog hair. And uh, so she would ask you to send her send like three ounces of dog clippings and she would make yarn and make you a hat. So I really was pretty mild in my response. I just said, you know, if this works out, I'm gonna have a coat for my dog made from my pubic hair, right? So why, why, it was just a stupid joke. Well, she wrote to me and she said that, uh, first of all, I'm, I am a cancer survivor. I had cancer five years ago. And she said, I hope you get cancer again. And uh, I hope that, uh, 
somebody kills themselves because of your jokes so that you will learn, you really get a feeling for what it is that you do to people. And, you know, people are going to commit suicide because of your comedy. And I was like, wow, that's just, it's a hat, you know? And, and really, I don't make fun of the people who make the stuff. You're making fun of the dog hair hat. I'm making fun of the dog hair hat. And uh, it just really, that was a, that really surprised me. I mean, I didn't, give a crap, you know, at the end of the day, I don't really care what you think, but, but uh, I, I think it's surprising how far people will go to um, school you for being mean. On the internet, things can always go too far. I got a piece sent to me, a submission sent to me. It was a black man and he was completely naked and he had a necklace around his waist and he was calling it the butt shield and it was hanging over his ass. And it was like a map of Africa or something. I don't know what the hell it was. And you could see like a little bit of his butt crack. And so I made a plumber joke, you know. And he lost his mind. And he started to write me emails saying that he was going to have my book deal canceled and he was going to have me pulled off the internet. And, you know, when he wasn't able to do that, he went to the police, who I think probably said, you know, it's really not, the internet is not a police matter. <laughs> Sorry about that. So that was frustrating. And, you know, I took it down. I didn't even argue with him. I took it down. But he just wouldn't leave it alone. And he sent me emails for weeks. And then he started to send me pictures of uh, lynchings, which I thought was really kind of sad. Not everyone gets angry, though. Some of the folks she features make the best of the attention and sell their items. April believes that this is the kind of attitude we all need to have when things happen for us online. You know, if there's, really, if there's one thing that I've learned from all of this, it's that you have no control over anything. And you never know what it's going to be. You never know what people are going to respond to and what they're going to like. And there have been many times that I have fallen all over myself, killed myself to do things that I felt, you know, invested tons of money in and time. And I thought, well, this is going to be the thing. This is going to get your attention, put me on the map, and nobody gives a crap. And then you do something for your own amusement, and that's the thing that everybody, you know, sees. But I always say that I'm having the same experience that the people in the book and on the site are having, which is that you don't really always get to say how attention comes to you, and you can't be so married to what it's supposed to look like that you miss the opportunity. And I'm just going to make the most of it. So of the, of the memes that are represented here that are attracting the most attention, it seems like the, the ones that people like the most are the ones that are the most authentic, you know? That's what I really like about reading some of the stuff on Urban Dictionary. Like, a lot of the entries are misspelled, they're not factual, they're, like, super opinionated. Um, like, the punctuation is wrong, if you can call it wrong. <laughs> Aaron Peckham founded Urban Dictionary in his dorm room in 1999. It serves 25 million people a month. And today, Aaron is dedicated full-time to running his site. He's even reading books about how dictionaries used to work before the Internet. The history of dictionaries is pretty fascinating. I didn't really study it when I was in school, but uh, I've just been like reading about it since I've been working on this project, and it's crazy that like only 50 years ago there were dictionaries that were actually trying to tell people how to speak instead of describing how language is actually spoken. And Urban Dictionary is pretty hardcore in one direction on that scale. I mean, everything in Urban Dictionary is as it's spoken in real life, if it's not a joke. <laughs> um, so I, I just really like that about it. And it's the only way to be. I mean, you can't tell people how to speak. There's just, I, I really don't know how the, the, French, uh, the French board that tells you what French is legitimate and everything, yeah. I don't know how that works. <laughs> Do they find somebody if they use French incorrectly? <laughs> Aaron's site is perhaps one of the most authentic sites on the Internet. The definitions Urban Dictionary puts out are totally more IRL than OED. I read an article the other day that the Oxford English Dictionary recently added a few words, and one of them was spam. They added a bunch of internet-related stuff, but spam has been in use on the internet for 15 years-ish. It's been around for a long time, and uh, it's kind of crazy that it's been so long that they, they waited to add this definition. Because a dictionary should really reflect how language is actually spoken, and 15 years is kind of too long to... You know, explain to non-English speakers what the heck we're talking about when we say spam. Aaron was doing user-generated content back when getting others to do your work for you was cool. But whereas Wikipedia is fast becoming a committee of gatekeepers, Urban Dictionary Store is always open. Anybody can add a definition, and there's uh, barely any barrier to entry. People write the most random stuff on there. And then it gets reviewed by a panel of volunteers, and then it gets published the next day. And the whole sequence can take less than 12 hours. It can be as fast as 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, so as soon as something comes out, for example, 
a week ago, uh, there was a guy who said that we are having tons of earthquakes on the planet because people, women, are dressing provocatively. Did you see this quote? Yeah. Ridiculous, yeah. right? And so the response of one female college student was to encourage all of her friends and a whole bunch of people on Facebook to dress provocatively for a single day. The word is boob quake. And now it's documented in Urban Dictionary. It's been less than a week. <laughs> I think it'll be a while before the OED includes that one. <laughs> Aaron's decade of experience running UrbanDictionary.com gives him sort of wizard cred. And he says he's starting to notice that there are new patterns of online behavior developing. Well, people are spending less time on the page and they're uh, viewing fewer pages per visit. And it could just be because my site's starting to suck more than it did before. Um, but it could also be that people's attention span is getting shorter. So I think it used to be about like five pages per visit, and now it's down to about three and a half or so. Um, but there are, there are a lot of things that influence that. Like, for example, on the mobile site recently, uh, we made some changes that made it significantly faster and a lot more fun to use. And the amount of time spent on the site went from three minutes to eight minutes, which is out of control. I mean, all of a sudden, people are spending more than double the amount of time reading Urban Dictionary. So, so I think people have less patience for things that are slow, and people read less. So uh, that's a big challenge for me because I just got to make the thing faster and more direct. Uh, my name is Ben Ha. I am the CEO and founder of the Cheeseburger Network. Uh, we run a uh, network of humor-based sites such as I Can Ask Cheeseburger and Failblog, which are the two of the most popular. I started with myself uh, as the only employee of the company about two and a half years ago, and now um, we're probably the largest humor network online. Ben Ha was kind of the man at RaffleCon. The man everyone liked to hate on. Many see his cheeseburger empire as exploiting internet culture. Ben took it all in stride, though. He told me the hate comes with the girth. At our scale, we are just so prevalent that um, you know, they just wonder, what, what are we doing that's different? Right? If you're successful, you must be cheating. Ben says the criticism doesn't bother him as much as the belief that commercialism is the enemy. He believes that monetization will, in fact, take internet culture to the next level. It requires commercialization for it to continue to advance. And what's fascinating about that audience is that, you know, half of those people are running their blogs hoping to make money themselves, right? So that's, that's kind of the irony in all of this. It's like, well, you know, I, I'm kind of uh, uh, afraid of you because you're so large, um, but I kind of want to be like you because you're so large. And, and there's that idea of um, envy as well as fear. Ben is a new breed of internet businessman. At times, he almost sounds like Lawrence Lessig. Well, a Lessig who wraps his message in banner ads. People are taking popular culture and twisting it and recreating it or advancing it to a point where they are generating the culture themselves, right? Which is a model that is very different than, you know, traditional television or popular culture where somebody owns the content and disseminates it out to a bunch of people. For example, I Can Ask Cheeseburger uh, is the premier site for um, content called Lolcats. That's the entire category. And the Lolcat is a picture of a cat photo with funny misspelled caption underneath it. Right? You can't exactly create a television show based on that idea, but it makes millions of people laugh. So what, what's, that's so weird, right? So mainstream media labels it and says, those are weird people who like this weird content online. Well, it's not really true. So cats are the most prevalent household pet in the United States. Lots of people have a relationship with their pets, and this is a way for them to express it in a sense of humor. Uh, the backbone of the company is formed on the idea of having the community drive the content. All of our content actually comes from the users who visit the sites. So they upload the images or videos or text to our sites, and um, the community as well as our staff moderate and curate the best ones to be featured on the home pages of each respective site. My job is a playground maker. I create communities and areas in which people can come in and say, I want to contribute my sense of humor as well. We have an internal uh, kind of goal, which is to make people happy for five minutes a day. And one of the reasons we have that goal is that we know that if we can make you consistently happy for five minutes a day, that means that we have earned your trust and your love. And you actually monetize um, things through people's love and engagement with you. Right? So that's how businesses will actually make a living going forward in this new web economy, not because people have a strategic advantage of, because of business alliances. It's because people, fans, truly love what you do and the, the service that you provide. A lot of the memes that show up on Ben Hu's cheeseburger sites come from the boards of 4chan. 4chan is a large uh, image-centric forum, and it's most well-known for its uh, the B random board, where uh, more or less there are no rules in a... Uh, it gets about maybe 500,000 posts per day. Any, anything under the sun kind of flies there. So that has produced a lot of internet uh, viral you know, content, memes and whatnot. Moot 
founded 4chan in 2003. Its most famous board is the B-board, the one where anything goes. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee you that if you go to the B-board right now, you'll probably see something that will upset you. But the B-board is also where the LOL cats came from, so it's really hard to say something that's actually definitive about 4chan. But more and more, this site is becoming something of a rallying cry for people who don't want to live on the Facebook internet. And there's no question that B plays an almost primordial role in internet culture. Um, so yeah, 4chan is a, is, is a soup of sorts. It's, it's all content under the sun can live on 4chan. There's, uh, it's more or less a framework of pictures and text. So any sort of image that you can imagine ends up on 4chan. And on the random board, yeah, you've got cute fluffy cats right next to like gore pictures, right? Uh, you know, very extreme content. Some of this content is inaccessible if you don't know the language. But as internet culture is getting more and more mainstream, a lot of these memes do make it to your mom. You know, there are kind of micro memes and macro memes. There's memes that are relevant to 4chan are, you know, micro in, in their scale. I mean, they're, uh, the, one of the memes I mentioned is Ouija, which is just this picture of, a, like a traced picture of Luigi. It actually comes from another uh, a board, a secret board. Um, I'm not going to mention the name of, but so they, they created this meme. 4chan kind of popularized it because they are an insular um, 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 form. So 4chan uh, took it, really liked it, uh, propagated it. And that's not something that's accessible to people outside of, you know, nerd culture. It's not something that, you know, I'm going to email to my mom and get a response from. The response would be question marks. It wouldn't be a laugh, right? Lolcats is something that you can uh, send to somebody. Uh, you can rickroll somebody, and, and, they, and they get that because it's accessible to them. You don't have to contextualize that meme and why it's funny. Um, and then, so then you've got the macro memes that are, are things that uh, can, can escape you know, forum sites, nerd culture, and make it into like an intermediary space, like you know, make it out to say Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. And then you've got like the, the really, you know, high up ones that uh, can escape that and enter the mainstream. And, you know, the media will pick up onto them and, and present them. And, and, and that's when you're, you know, everybody knows about them. It's like full, you know, full saturation kind of. Moot isn't really worried about the mainstreaming of internet culture. In fact, I think people who ask him this question have never really been on his site. But he is concerned about the commercialization. He's not a fan of the cheeseburger empire. If you're extracting value from internet, you should be replacing you know, what you're taking in, in, in some uh, shape or form. And what the, you know, the cheeseburger model is you know, taking memes, taking these images, throwing ads around them, and just you know, milking them for ad dollars, taking other people's you know, time and energy and, and efforts. And sure, you get a little link, you know, thanks, Bob. But, you know, they're raking in. I mean, this is a real business. This is a six, seven, you know, maybe even eight-figure business. So there's a lot of money in this. And, uh, you know, clearly if you created the funniest lolcat, you're not seeing any of that. And it's not to say that, like, you deserve to see, you know, like royalties on your LOL cat. But, I mean, I think that really, I mean, most people would agree that there is a problem with people just, just taking other content, uh, you know, quote-unquote, you know, they might argue they're curating it, but they're really just badging it and, and you know, they're milking it for ad dollars. Um, so that there has to be a, a better way of doing that. But for Moot, the solution is not more credit. 4chan is a functioning community of anonymous users. His very site suggests that this idea that credit is the currency of the web is incorrect. And that actually there might be something else driving online creativity. Something that goes viral is, is shareable and it's accessible. And you, the whole point is you don't need to know authorship and you don't really care about that. You're consuming it and you're, you care about it because of, you know, it's, it's intrinsic poverty. It's, it's funny. Um, so I think if you were to have like a model where, yeah, people are getting credit and dollars and, and, and like you're really trying to turn that into like, a, a business, but one that's not kind of morally reprehensible, I think it's difficult because then now you're kind of encroaching on what makes memes memes. Fortune is interesting because it's anonymous and you don't have uh, this persistent user identity, you don't have reputation. And so when people post content, like you're not, you don't, essentially, it, it's hard to imagine like accumulating social capital on 4chan because there's no sort of like what is it I, what is it associated with like your identity your identity doesn't exist and so people contribute content they help one another out they they they're just they remain a part of the community and it's not like you know, every other site has this external factor to that you know if you're answering questions you're you're gaining whatever capital in that community be it points or stars or just people knowing you're that guy 4chan doesn't have that 4chan is you're that guy but you're not that guy to everybody else you're that guy to your and so it's this very like internal sense of 
of uh, say achievement or accomplishment that's only relevant to you personally because other people don't know. Um, and so I would argue that because of that, so you're creating content for attention, you're not creating content for credit because you've already uh, done away with identity. I mean, that, and that's awesome, right? Because creating content for more than just being that guy, I mean, it's, it's not even the nobility of it, it's just that's, that's what it should be about. You know, art, art is art, not art is like, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. Not everyone was a hit at RaffleCon, like the Rickroll dude. Hi, my name is Brad, and I'm here Rickrolling the con. Rickrolling is an internet phenomenon where you would tell someone, hey, check out this cool link, check out this cool picture of a cat, check out this, this interesting article, check, and instead of the video or the article, it'd be a video for Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Everyone complained about Michael's Rickrolling, but that didn't stop him from walking around dressed like Rick Astley with red hair and a denim shirt, blaring his boombox the whole damn weekend. Everyone has a reaction to never going to give you up, and that's why I do it. While seeking refuge from the Rick roll, I talked to Jessica Amison, the co-creator of This Is Why You're Fat, a blog that used the Tumblr platform to get a book deal after just one month online. You know, the title's kind of a little bit of a joke. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek. And, uh, and I had started saying um, .tumblr.com <laughs> after things. Like, you know, oh, it's a beautiful day outside, .tumblr.com, you know. Um, and it actually became a really good way to think of themed blogs. So at one point I had said, oh my gosh, look at this crazy, like, bacon explosion that the New York Times is covering. Like, this is why you're fat, .tumblr.com. We were approached by, I think, like, in the first week over 10 um, publishing houses and agencies. So, because people thought the site had been around for a while and that it had just been discovered, but really, I mean, it was you know, out of the gate. So it, it was insane. I think within the first 24 hours, we had over a million page views. But, you know, the, the whole phenomenon and that quick turnaround where, you know, you build this massive following, you have this meteoric rise, and then you get a book deal right like that, um, you know, it wasn't really a trend until we came along, and, and I think people sort of used our site as a how-to. Neil Ciceraga doesn't have a book, but he did create an entirely new type of animation called Animutation, a Dadaist genre of flash animation when he was just 14 years old. But his internet fame really took off with his Potter Puppet Pals videos. The episode The Mysterious Ticking Noise is the 16th most viewed video on YouTube ever. Once YouTube took off and, and uh, The Mysterious Ticking Noise got popular, that's when it, it got a little more crazy in terms of people finding my number, calling me, uh, trying to get me on the phone, or writing me letters, or uh, occasionally recognizing me in public. But I definitely remember picking up the phone once and having uh, three or four girls scream at once on the phone into my ear. Neil's only 23 years old, but he talks with the wizened crankiness and success of a dude who's many internet eons older. I mean, as someone who's always used memes and has always tried to create new memes, when a new one kind of comes out of left field and if I don't understand where it came from or why it's funny, then my gut reaction is to just say, that's not funny, that's stupid, why are you stupid people saying this stupid thing? So, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of unfair for me to judge people for doing the same thing that I did, but at the same time, I can't help but feel like I have a little more insight into how humor on the internet is born. Another cranky guy is Kevin Atterbury, the creator of Clippy. He wants to make it clear that Clippy is bigger than the internet. Uh, Clippy is famous on the internet only because people put him on the internet. Uh, it has really nothing to do with the internet. He's famous on the internet because he's been parodied all over the internet. Even though a lot of people don't like Clippy, he still has Facebook fan pages and Daily Show videos. Kevin says Clippy benefits from one of the secret laws of internet fame. You talk to just about anybody and they say, oh, Clippy, yeah, I hate Clippy, I hate that thing. But the thing is, they know who Clippy is and they're familiar with him and that works for me because even if they hate him, they perpetuate his uh, familiarity. Jason Scott is another longtime resident of the internet and the founder of Text Files, a site that archives discussion boards and other text-based materials online. Uh, at RaffleCon, they consider me the historian guy. My job is to make it so they think about stuff that happened before 2000. 
you know, these memes and things that they're proud of tend to be post-2000 stuff. So I talk about things from the 80s or earlier. At RaffleCon, he moderated a panel called The Heroes of Usenet, where it was claimed that they don't make boards like Usenet anymore. The 4chan crew was in the audience, and the room erupted into a generational feud. I consider them pretty lame in terms of their ability. I mean, I've this was a panel of people who have dealt with some of the largest flame wars over the last 20 years. A couple guys shouting at the end of the panel. That's like so controlled. It's like uh, having a punk act on television, you know? It's like, yeah, oh good, they destroyed something at the end. Ooh, right when they're supposed to. Right on cue. O'Farrell. I, I'm at RaffleCon right now uh, because I... You're wearing a cat suit. Yeah, I'm wearing a cat suit. I'm at uh, RaffleCon because um, I was on a panel where I talked about playing off Keyboard Cat uh, video I made. And um, I wore the outfit because I, I figured after my panel, uh, like, I people... Like, I, I figured I would fade into the crowd if I wasn't wearing an outfit after my panel. So at least I can be, like, the keyboard cat guy all weekend, which is uh, what I came here for in the first place. I almost didn't talk to Brad O'Farrell. There was something kind of off-putting about this grown man dressed up in a cat suit. But it turns out he had more meme cred than anyone else I met. You see, two years ago, Brad was at RaffleCon 1, and he was just a regular guy a regular guy who dreamed of one day making it big on the internet. Yeah, when I was when I came here to the last Rafflecon I was I was an intern at the, this company I used to work for that like uh, I they did online videos. So I've been like like working if you can see I'm doing air quotes in uh internet stuff since like late 2007. Right now I'm I I blog for um one of the I can has cheeseburger websites and uh, snuzzy.com and morar.com and dailysquee.com. Um but I've been like I mean I I like work in internet stuff so I I would have come anyway. I would have come here anyway, but it's nice to uh have a a meme to tack on to my internet stuff resume. Now, Brad didn't make the original Keyboard Cat video. We'll talk with Charlie Schmidt, the guy who put his cat Fatso in the blue onesie and on camera next. But Brad was the evil genius responsible for making Play Him Off Keyboard Cat a world-famous internet meme. I, I saw his video on YouTube, and I, uh, I... I think I was like sending it to people on IM in conversations and like in emails, like after like bad news, and uh, I, I thought it would be funny to mash it up with like a video of a person failing, and I uh, found a, a, a good fail video and uh, mashed it up with that, and I titled it "Play Him Off Keyboard Cat," kind of in, intentionally um, making it like a template where you know ha- includes the name Keyboard Cat in the title. Play him off is what he's doing, and then like the him is a variable which can be changed easily. I was intending to make like multiple myself, but I never actually did. But uh, but I kind of like made it in like a template format, and um, then other people started doing parodies, which is good because I mean I didn't have to. And uh, and I, I uh, well, but when I saw people were making parodies, I uh, was pretty sure it was going to take off. So I uh, wanted to get it uh, monetized before it took off, so I contacted Charlie, and I was like, I need your permission to put ads on this, but also, like, I need your permission to, like, I need you to give permission to everyone to use it, because if there's no parodies, then it, you know, it just dies. So um, he was okay with that, and uh, it worked out good for both of us. We both made money off of it uh, because of the parodies and because of the lax copyright on Charlie's video. Now, I said earlier that I couldn't imagine a scientist explaining to me why I like this video so much, but that's only because I lack the ability to imagine a scientist wearing a blue cat suit. Brad has clearly figured out how humor works on the internet. Like the cat playing the keyboard, like the cat playing the keyboard 
with the intention to like like you know c- conveying this sort of cruel uh commentary on the person it's playing off is is like kind of a it's a weird concept and like even when it's on become appears on mainstream things like it has to be it always has to be like explained before it makes sense like you know it was on uh, the Colbert Report, he was like, it's a cat and it plays a keyboard to, when people fail and, you know, he, he has to explain it. But it's weird how on the internet, like, it doesn't even need to be explained. You just read the title and you're like, oh, I know what that means. And then you see the video and, like, there's more of a, um, I, I guess, a, uh, uh, you're more easily, you have, like, a s- suspension of disbelief, I guess, but, like, suspension of, like, uh, standards and finding things funny, <laughs> like you, you, you're uh, more likely to find something funny that barely makes sense on on the internet, especially because you're in like a mindset of just looking for anything that's funny, uh, well on YouTube especially. So uh, that's that I, I, that might also um, just because there's such such a selection, and maybe I guess because you're, you're you're like actively looking for funny things rather than just sitting and watching something funny presented to you. You're like you'll take what you you can get. So it kind of uh, changes what people think's funny on the internet more. So things, uh, I guess, on the internet that are uh, are funny aren't really funny in, in uh, like on TV. Like sometimes on TV things will be funny because it's it's just funny that that was on TV. Where like on the internet sometimes it's just funny that it's like even like you know something that's even slightly funny. It's just it's the weirdness of it makes it funnier. Brad is not claiming that he can repeat this magical performance, but I know for certain that he was not the only guy in the audience at RaffleCon 1 thinking to himself, one day I will be internet famous. But I'm pretty sure he's the only guy who pulled it off. And so I'm happy I helped make him feel that it was all worthwhile. But not everyone is generous like me. Somebody just shot nerf darts at me, uh, r- ranting at me for uh, riding out my 15 minutes of fame and like it, like taking over my life. But, like this, I mean, it's RaffleCon. Basically, I had a lot of time and a cat and a keyboard and a camera. And I'm not trying to be funny. It's just that that's what I had. Charlie Schmidt immortalized his cat Fatso almost 25 years ago. And like Brad, he seems to totally understand why the world loves Keyboard Cat. This is, this is a video of my cat playing the piano, playing a real short, really cool riff that's original music. She wrote it herself. And she clearly has an attitude while she's playing it. It's like she's, there's a message there. Even though she's not singing, there's, there's some definite nonverbal communication. And it's a little bit reflective. Well, it is reflective of, of how I feel. The cat was speaking for me, and, but nobody was listening because it was just in a drawer, the videotape. And so then Brad O'Farrell had the wherewithal to, he's very savvy on internet culture, and the word fail was really, it's popular. So people would see a video and their comment would be fail, which just means it sucks in one word or less, which I like the internet, it shortens things. And, and he replaced fail with, by taking the video that he thought was a fail and putting the keyboard cat after it. So it was sort of like the cat was making this comment on it. It's sort of like the cat was saying, Nobody's ever really asked me this. I think the cat was saying, um, kind of like, you're an idiot, and it's okay, and we're still happy anyway. And, and we, don't, we don't mean to put you down. In fact, we're sort of celebrating your, your idiocy. It's just sort of celebration of humanity as it is, with all its flaws. It just takes the ordinary things and says, it's not only okay, it's cool. <laughs> to screw up. Charlie has been making art and playing music his whole life, and he embraced the internet from day one. He totally gets that the internet is the greatest thing that has ever happened for creative people like himself. 
but the response to Keyboard Cat has also opened his eyes to the creative potential of the audience. For Charlie, these new online audience behaviors just might be signs of a giant leap forward for the human spirit. When somebody is doing what they love full blast, it's attractive. People like it. They just do. I don't know why, and, I, and I, it doesn't matter. It's just they do. And it's sort of like dogs can smell fear, and kids can tell when adults are bullshitting them. Even if they can't say it, they know it. Even people who haven't got the wherewithal to pursue or execute their own dreams, when they see it, it, they know it's genuine. People find it attractive because the human spirit wants to um, express itself in its undiluted, unfiltered fashion. It's like a radish seed knows how to become a bright, big, juicy, crisp radish without going to college or church or anything. And people know how to do something too. And we all know that about ourselves, even though it might be happening when we see it happening, it's attractive and it may motivate us. It says, you can do this. And so it's empowering. Ethan Zuckerman also believes in the transformative power of memes. In as much as there's a space for possible communication, internet memes does sort of seem like the natural space. These are all about participatory culture. Someone puts something out there, you're invited to participate in it. Most of the jokes are really simple, really silly, really easy to join in. It's just not that hard to find a funny picture of a cat and add a caption to it. And it seems to me like it's probably not an easy thing to put together a serious multilingual debate on the future of the environment between Chinese, Indian, Brazilian, Russian, and American youth. Uh, but maybe we can share some pictures of cute cats. And, and maybe this is a first step in sort of fighting what I see as this very natural impulse uh, to have the internet sort of shatter uh, around borders of nation and borders of language. So uh, I, I guess it's a lot of weight to put on the backs of cute cats, but I would love to see uh, cute cats and any other silly internet meme if we can uh, being a bridge that brings us closer together. Of course, Ethan is well aware that most memes can be pretty cruel, but he's also an unrepentant techno-optimist. And so he can see a future in which pieces of viral internet culture allow everyone to share in the lulls. What I would really like to see is a movement from lolling at to lolling with. So it's really easy to look for an ugly piece of English out there, you know, massacred English, and, and just sort of laugh at whoever did such a bad job of translating or used Wikipedia to translate. And, you know, I, I, I too love the... Um, uh, love the Chinese translation that, that puts forward a, a picture of juice and, and labels it Wikipedia juice. I mean, it just, it makes me enormously happy. But, you know, at a certain point, that, that's laughing at, and that's laughing at someone who doesn't speak English and someone who hasn't translated well. There are memes out there that people have managed to participate in cross cultures um, and done it where they're sort of laughing together. Um, one of my favorites is, is the back dorm boys. Uh, and so this was a pair of Chinese university students who ended up doing uh, a very overblown lip sync uh, to the Backstreet Boys. And this became enormously famous and very viral. And all over the world, uh, particularly in the U.S., people essentially dressed up as these guys. They're both wearing Yao Ming Houston Rockets shirts. And so people made their own Yao Ming uh, Houston Rockets shirts and, and, you know, are now making fun of them making fun of the Backstreet Boys. And something about the fact that it's Chinese culture laughing at American culture now being laughed at by American culture or French culture or Latvian culture, to me that seems like a much healthier thing than just sort of looking at something in Japan that we don't understand and going, look at that crazy guy, you know, let's all laugh at him. Um, laughing with takes some real effort. Ethan Zuckerman also believes that memes can teach us about attention. Like Moot, Ethan is a firm believer that attention is the true currency of a free and open internet. 
One of the things that's interesting about looking at internet memes is that these are ways to suddenly get a whole lot of attention to something that might be very, very silly. But we've already seen that these things can be quite political, and whether it's Obama girl or whether it's uh, this wonderful Chinese tradition of viral videos that are, are deeply important political satires, attention matters. It's one of the scarce commodities in the world. Um, it's something that matters enormously in a consumer society or in a democracy. It determines what we pay what we pay money for, it determines who we vote for, what we set as our priorities, and my sense is that we understand it poorly, if at all. And so if there is an academic value towards studying memes, it's because they're amazingly effective attention sucks, and to the extent that we can start to understand them, we start understanding this broader world of attention as a currency. This episode of Too Much Information is called TTH. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, Laura Mayer, and Bill Bowen. Thanks to everyone we met at RaffleCon. Special thanks to Tim Huang, Christina Shu, Colin McClay, and Amr Asher. You can find more information on the TMI playlist page and subscribe to the TMI podcast. All that at WFMU.org.